changed since I moved to the city. Liddy, let them know that my roots in Mississippi. This is a Pedagogue and D Black Digital Black Lit and Composition collaboration. It's a podcast mini-series that amplifies Black graduate student pedagogies, practices, writings, and lived experiences. Every episode of this mini-series is a conversation designed to uplift and celebrate Black teachers, scholars, students. Each episode features a new perspective, and each episode highlights the work of Black graduate students and their family line of scholars. You can check out dblack at dblack.org. You can follow dblack on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. D-Black is an online and in-person network of Black-identified graduate students and advanced undergraduate students in fields related to the study of language. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Let's get started. In this episode, I talk with Charlicia McKinney. Charlicia McKinney is a first-generation PhD candidate at the University of Kansas in Rhetoric and Composition with a focus on women, gender, and sexuality studies. She is a dissertation fellow at Middle Tennessee State University for 2021 and 2022. Her dissertation project is a qualitative study that investigates Black women's relationships to pleasure through the lens of literacy. Her other work can be found in Composition Forum and the Journal of Critical Scholarship on Higher Education and Student Affairs. Charlicia, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start by talking about your research around Black femininity and pleasure. So excited to just chat with you. You know, it's like grad school seems like (laughs) the beginning of it seems like forever ago. Seven years later, what I'm working on is my dissertation joins a lineage of intersectional work that places Black women at the center. And so through this project, I'm trying to develop this concept and build on this concept of pleasure literacy, I think akin to the developments of like emotional literacy or financial literacies, for example. Um, And I think viewing pleasure through the lens of literacy allows us to better locate some of the material and embodied realities of Black women's relationships to pleasure, and that includes sexual and non-sexual pleasures. Um, So I was finding that there's this literature on the violence that Black women historically and currently endure, but Black women's relationships to pleasure understudied, understated, and under-theorized. And Black women face these kind of paradoxical public perceptions of being invisible and hyper-visible, of like being prude and also hypersexual. And so this project kind of illuminates the relationship between Black feminist theories, pleasure politics, Black women's literacies together. Um, Because Black feminist scholarship informs pleasure politics, and Black feminist scholarship also informs uh, Black women's literacies, but the two have not yet been put in conversation with each other. Uh, Similarly, literacy is kind of regarded as a civil right, and sexual pleasure has also been asserted as a human right. Um, And I agree with and operate from that premise that both literacy and pleasure are civil human rights. And these concepts have been studied individually but not yet together. And so I'm kind of trying to bridge, build a bridge between all of these concepts. And so uh, I bring all of this to qualitative research. So to kind of access these queries over the last two months, I completed 35 in-depth interviews and eight focus groups. All the participants identify as Black American women between the ages of 23 and 64. 
And so we've got a lot of richness um, in the participant pool. And broadly, while this project is focused specifically on Black women's relationships to pleasure, um, broadly, I want this project to help all of its readers to consider what would it mean to be literate in your own pleasure. How does this research inform your approach to teaching writing? How does this understanding of Black femininity and pleasure and literacy affect how you see yourself as a grad student and teacher at the University of Kansas? I think my teaching and research commitments are like deeply intertwined. Uh, as I approach feminist work as this invitation to kind of bring my full self to my scholarship and just to my work. And I'll say more about that a little later. Um, but this dissertation project was actually, I feel like really inspired by my teaching. So what happened to me is I actually pitched an original dissertation. My original dissertation proposal, I was going to look at like fat representation across different media types. And I really want to return to that, but it was like eight months went by and I didn't have anything. I think a, a large part of that was due to some genre constraints of trying to like make articles out of this. And that's a whole nother conversation. But I, I like one day got this like notification on my astrology app, whatever that was like, you know, invisible work is still work. And I was like, well, what could that be, you know, kind of talking about. And at the same time, I'm teaching a literacy narrative in this introduction to rhetoric and composition course. It was our 380 course. And so this is my first time teaching a 300 level course. I'm engaging with majors. And I most often, I always teach a literacy unit, but it's done a little differently. So shout out to Amanda Slotik for <laughs> sharing her prompt with me early in grad school, because the students have the option to either write about a traditional literacy experience, something with reading, writing, learning a language, or they can write about anything else, some kind of a new literacies thing. So I've had students write about learning to play soccer, how they learned um, photography, uh, being a cheerleader, you know, it's like all of these different things. Um, but then one student asked if she could write about the literacy of being an effective liar. And I thought, well, that, that requires, a, like, that is a literacy. That requires a certain skill set. And I often get students, I'll ask them, like, what are the things that you're really, really good at? And what does it mean to be good at that, to help them start to unlock some of their literacy skills? I think it was something about that student project while alongside being on this pleasure journey that I started to wonder what can we learn about pleasure if we look at it through the lens of, of through the lens of literacy? Just thinking about Deborah Brandt's literacy sponsors, like okay, who taught us how to feel good? When and where did that happen? And so all of these kind of concepts through literacy became really interesting to me when I started to apply it to pleasure politics, capturing the oral narratives of people's relationships to pleasure. And so that's the project that I pitched. Um, and then the university shut down like a week later because of COVID. <laughs> so, but honestly, focusing on pleasure in the pandemic has been uh, life-saving. And I think in terms of teaching, I really look forward to what it could look like to teach even like a politics of pleasure course, or, you know, in teaching a literacy studies class and kind of bringing some of this along the way. Uh, but I also really think about it in like a community space or community literacy also, because I guess I don't yet know how to balance bringing in pleasure, say, to the first year writing classroom. And I think there's a lot of non-sexual pleasures that could apply, but I also think about it in a community space 
Like I've been doing these kind of workshops and things just to help all of us think about what it would mean to be literate um, in our own pleasure. So I think that there are a few different educational kind of spaces for this work. What does it mean to be literate in our own pleasure? It's a thing that I'm still developing. um, But the things that I know now are, I think at first I felt all of this pressure to have kind of this fixed list. um, But that's actually quite antithetical to what it would mean to kind of be pleasure literate. And so I think it first would require knowing what it means for our minds and our bodies to kind of be in alignment. And so there are times when I know I'm in alignment and when I'm not in alignment. I think pleasure literacy uh, also helps us think about the ways that our pleasure is individually and also collectively connected. And so the things that I need and require for my pleasure as like a queer, fat, Black woman is going to be maybe very different than the things that you will require in your pleasure. And we have to be aware of the ways that our pleasure needs might require us to take from each other or not. Because um, I often find the thread that came through, say, in my research is like how much emotional and other labor Black women feel that they have to give to everyone and how that interferes with their relationship to pleasure. That is even a portion of what it would mean to be literate in it because we have to be aware of who to give labor to, who to like kind of build boundaries around. And so I just keep kind of thinking about, you know, some of the tenets of it. It means that we know what it feels like in our bodies. It means that we know what it looks like individually and also how it connects to others. It's ongoing and it's more dynamic than I thought it was going to be. At first, I thought it was going to be very kind of static, but that does not achieve what we can do through pleasure. And so it is thinking about for everyone what it means to be literate in your own pleasure is going to vary, although there'll be some through lines of thinking about that kind of alignment with yourself. You mentioned this earlier, but some interest in your teaching and research include fat studies, queer studies, and embodiment. I think you said you want to pick up on this again in the future. Can you talk more about what you were doing or what you are doing through these investigations and intersections and what they mean for teaching writing. I just remember my very first year, you know, our first year (laughs) teaching at KU, what was that, 2014. I feel like I was reading all this scholarship that was like, you have to leave your politics at the door before teaching. And I feel like I really tried to do that first semester at the same time, like Ferguson's happening, right? And so I'm trying to figure out as a Black teacher, how do I talk to this predominantly white class about race? And I didn't figure it out at the time, but I was just realizing what a lie (laughs) it was to leave politics at the door. And because for me, as I walk in as a multiply marginalized educator, it's it's already disrupted, right? And so um, existing at this kind of intersection of Blackness and fatness and queerness and womanhood, like I feel like I never really saw myself fully represented like in my instructors in undergrad or even grad school or even in the text that, you know, we were assigned. And I think that's what sparked this desire more or less, you know, to kind of enter the professoriate and think about what it would mean to kind of embody that intersectional visibility for future students. At the time, I had no idea, you know, what that would really entail. Um, But another thing that I've kind of figured out over the last year is 
now being out as a queer woman, it's like I've had this experience of making something visible that was once invisible. And that for me really mirrors my desire of making the hidden curriculum of the university more visible. Um, I really believe in like explicit teaching um, and being as transparent as possible with our students. Um, I was just saying in another meeting how much it has benefited my scholarship and I think just pedagogies and coming up in our program and rhetorical genre studies, like my ability to um, identify genres and their conventions and structures, I think has been far more formative in my grad school trajectory than I realized. And, you know, I think I'm like, did we take two genre courses together? It's like, I was so confused. Like, I cannot emphasize enough how confused I was in our first, you know, like genre class. I had no idea what was going on. I was approaching genres in a very reductive way. Like I thought that we were just going to go in and that maybe uh, they talk about, okay, here's a literacy narrative and here's what has to happen here, here, here. And then it was nothing like that. You know, it was so much more than that. But all that to say, I think the more explicit I have been as a teacher and the more explicit instruction I've received as a student has only helped me. And I think that that's really critical, um, particularly because it's like I'm a first generation student. I think that that's like one of the better things that we can kind of do for first gen students. And thinking about these identities as well, it feels similar to how I'm kind of straddling trying to find my place as an interdisciplinary scholar. I think it's Caulfield who talks about entering interdisciplinary work is kind of like searching for and creating an academic home. And I think that is also what it's like being a multiply marginalized educator in, you know, these predominantly white institutions, um, really all institutions. Yeah, I think that's a portion of the ways that I see kind of embodiment and just being a fat scholar and a queer scholar and using those things all together. I guess my personal politic, you know, operates from this understanding that the body is a text that can be read and analyzed. And so when we're thinking about literacy, um, I think outside of the field, you know, most people just think about the written text, um, but we're really kind of expanding it. As you were saying, our identities are never left at the door. They are always with us. They are always present in and through our classrooms, in and through our teaching, in and through the spaces that we occupy. So I'm interested in hearing how you feel the Academy can support Black teachers, scholars, and students. Oh, this is such a, a good and big question. There are so many ways. I wish I had all the answers, but some of the things that come to mind, um, my second year of teaching, I had, it's, it's definitely the most explicit racist incident that's ever happened. So it doesn't happen all the time, but I mean, I had this, white male student who had wanted, who talked about wanting to own like Nazi paraphernalia. And this student later also talked to another student about, oh, slavery was just, you know, a good economic opportunity. Hitler really wasn't that bad. You know, just kind of like the most extreme things that could kind of happen. And as a second year uh, teacher, I really didn't know what to do about that. And I took it to the administrator at the time and was ultimately kind of encouraged to like not do anything about it and I knew that that wasn't right so what ended up happening is I had to go to like other instructors uh, or faculty of color to be like what do I do and their advice was like don't ignore it and I was like that's what my gut was telling me um, but I think you know 
white faculty and admins and otherwise need to know like when, especially like vulnerable grad students and especially multiply marginalized students and teachers bring these issues to you, like ignoring it is not the appropriate solution. I think that we learn a lot uh, when we slow down sometimes and really think about all the factors, because I do think that there is a pressure to respond really quickly and really perfectly, but we don't have all the answers. And so sometimes responding too quickly can do a lot of damage. Um, so I think it's also okay for folks to admit that they don't have the answers, but they're committing to figuring it out. So it's like in many ways in grad school, I've had to kind of create these supports because they weren't already in place. I think similarly, it's understanding that multiply marginalized faculty, especially Black faculty who are multiply marginalized, who do not teach conservative content, um, will get a certain level of pushback. I always teach feminist you know, theories and methods, but I also make very clear at the beginning of class, I taught a Disney and feminism course in 2017. And I started that course by saying to the students, you know, if you are not yet ready to talk about white supremacy or homophobia or capitalism or fat phobia, that's okay. But you do need to drop this class because I don't want to have to fight you along the way. And it's, and it's like, that's also not going to be productive to um, your learning. And so I'm completely fine with making transparent with students on the front end of what the course material is going to be. And even sometimes in doing that, it doesn't mean that I don't get pushed back um, on the other end. And I think having that administrative support is really important. Even as I've interviewed through different like fellowship interviews this year, that's one of the questions that I ask, like what practices and protocols are in place for Black and multiply marginalized faculty who don't teach conservative content? Like, are you prepared for that? Do you have a plan? And I think it's really important for each institution to feel like they have plans in place for when these incidents will most likely inevitably happen. Thanks, Charlicia. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers, for tuning in to this Pedagog and D-Black collaboration. You to love it, turn it up when you went public. I'm my worst critic. You don't feel it, you won't hear. Had you waiting for a minute just to make sure you were spinning. Last song was I, but this time coming with a vengeance. That's my good friend, Raph Peters, a.k.a. Kazo. He's a Houston-based rapper, and that's his single, Liddy. You can check him out on YouTube, youtube.com backslash Kazo Music. That's K-Z-O-E Music. 